millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to the podcast. I'm Peter Hart, and with me is Gary Bain. Hello, Gary. Hello, Pete. Are you going to be with somebody else one week? I hope so. <laughs> Change is as good as a rest. Um, we, we'd, uh, we, we, uh, we're, we're here recording at my gaff because it, uh, it was going to rain. <laughs> so Gary's driven all the way here and said to me, walk to his. Right, uh, what are we doing today, oh maestro? Well, today, Pete, it's the second part of the uh, Eddie Rickenbacker, Edward V. Rickenbacker. Wow, wow, wow. And this part I've called Seagulls. Oh. And it will become apparent as to why, unless you know about his life story, in which case you already know. Now, in the last podcast, we left Captain Rickenbacker touring the United States promoting Liberty Bonds in a rather imaginative way by speaking complete nonsense uh, on behalf of the US government. Now, following his discharge from the United States, say the US Air Force, whatever it is. USAAF. Was it called that then? I called it then. <laughs> uh, and prior to forming the Rickenbacker Motor Company, uh, Rickenbacker undertook a number of promotional activities. Uh, what's he trying to do there? Well, he's trying to generate public and governmental enthusiasm for the potential of airplanes, but unfortunately he had limited success. Now, in 1920-1921, he made four transcontinental crossings, during which he had... <laughs> yes, <laughs> he had seven crashes... Nine near misses and eight forced landings. Now, we're emphasising, we, we tried to do this right from the start, Pete. He, he seems somewhat accident prone, but a very lucky individual. He seems to survive these things. Lucky Eddie, they call him. Yeah. They're being informal, of course. Now, the Rickenbacker Motor Company, that started in 1920. What was that involved with? Well, they designed a car which took two years and 100,000 miles of test driving before it was unveiled at the New York Auto Show in 1922. Now, that's it's marketed It's marketed a car worthy of its name, i.e. Rickenbacker. Uh, and it's also uh, rather, uh, I would imagine, controversial at the time, utilises the hat-in-the-ring squadron symbol. What is the hat-in-the-ring squadron symbol? Just remind our listeners, Gary. It's a ring with a hat in it. The clue's in the name. Now, 
It was a high quality mid price car described as up to the minute in every detail. And as you'll, you'll find out shortly, it was. They sold for between $1,500 and $2,000. Now, thanks to the, and I'd better take this bit because it's a yeah, bit complex for you. You need to describe this for me. Yeah, because uh, it, it had, Gary, an innovative uh, tandem flywheel at the rear of the crankshaft. Now, that <laughs> significantly reduced vibration. Which, uh, well, it would, Gary, it, it, would. it would. It would. I mean, it would. Think about it. Now, it was... Wouldn't you, <laughs> if you had a crankshaft... It was selected to make the first transcontinental radio tour in 1922, and the following year, its smooth ride was celebrated in the popular song In My Rickenbacker Car by Leo Wood, which was alternatively entitled, which I much prefer, Cracker Jacker Rickenbacker. Cracker Jacker Rickenbacker. Now, we have no idea how this song goes, dear all listener. Of the, all of the lyrics. But you've written some for us, haven't you? We, we're going to have a go at uh, our own lyrics. So, um, after three, Pete. One, two, three. In my Rickenbacker car. In my Rickenbacker car. I sit in the front seat in order to drive. I lay on the back seat when I want to skive. And thanks to a seagull, I'm very much alive. In my Rickenbacker car. Well, oh, what a treat that what, was. That, the listeners all over the world are switching off. Yes. <laughs> now, in September 1922, uh, Rickenbacker marries, doesn't he? And he, he marries Adelaide Frostenat. Yeah, she was the uh, former wife of one of his many racing rivals. And uh, although they were both in their 30s, and, and in fact she was five years older than him, uh, their marriage was a happy one that lasted 51 years until Rickenbacker's death in 1973. So they lived happily ever after. Uh, sort of, yes. <laughs> I'll just, another clue to the ending there. <clears throat> now, uh, in 1923, following his marriage, Rickenbacker decides to take, make the, uh, the Rickenbacker Motor Company uh, public uh, and he prices the shares at an imaginative $11 each um, so the sale was promoted by a statement extolling the virtues of Eddie Rickenbacker Ooh, who else did it extol? Well and his management team although I do actually wonder who they were trying to convince and this is the statement which you are going to read eloquently the management of the Rickenbacker Motor Company is composed of pioneers in the industry. And although young in years, this company is in reality one of the oldest from the standpoint of management. The past record of success is made by each and every official inspires confidence. And we believe stock in the Rickenbacker Motor Company offers safety in every way that men of proven ability and integrity can devise to safeguard your interests. And their own. So he'd moved to Australia, he moved to Australia temporarily. <laughs> that, that was, was awful. awful. How do Americans speak? I don't know. Not like that. Uh, now, never mind. A mid-year introduction of four-wheel brakes, which was an innovation that was uh, born from a system that he'd actually benefited from when he was on the racetrack a decade earlier, that was costly, and the delays contributed to difficult sales conditions. Well, I was wondering, because when you said it was a high-quality, mid-price car, there was a, there is an element of, 
High quality, tends to cost money, mid-price. And also think about when this was, you know, what, what could be round the corner? Oh, was it that Henry Ford? Now, another mid-change in uh, 1924, mid-year change, sorry, left the dealerships feeling mistreated and they had to take on additional costs. What, you mean they changed the car? Uh, yeah. They kept changing things. And despite these difficulties, the Rickenbacker Model 8 was the fast car in the 1925 Indianapolis 500. No idea what any of those words meant. Well, the Indianapolis 500 is a 500-mile race. And it's it's an, an endurance race, I presume, uh, which means that, you know, that car, it was a good car. Now, does he does he abandon aviation then for cars? Because that was his original career, of course. No, he doesn't. <clears throat> he continues to work in aviation, but but you might want to ask whether he should have been concentrating on the uh, Rickenbacker Motor Company, given the uh, problems it was experiencing. The uh, introduction of the less expensive and equally reliable Chrysler that cut into it wasn't Ford; it was Chrysler. No, and that cut into their market, making a difficult trading environment even harder. And in December 1926, Automotive Industries magazine reported: "Will this be your American?" This will be my American accent. Operating under a temporary and friendly receivership, the lately reorganised company. I'm from Boston. Apparently, they sound English. Uh, is now in production on the new models. During the month of December, between 300 and 400 new cars will be shipped and plans call for the production of 500 a month for 1927. According to Rickenbacker officials, their dealership organisation has remained intact during the reorganisation period and all dealers are now in possession of the new line of cars. The company expects to settle its $500,000 indebtedness and terminate its receivership within six months. Friendly receivership. Is somebody lying? Yeah, I've never heard of a friendly receivership. Have you been in receivership in any of your many careers? You've received me on a number of occasions. That's rude and not true. <laughs> now, for our listeners, take a bridge. This view proved to be fatally optimistic, and the company went bankrupt in 1927. So it was only about for five years. Now, despite not being legally responsible for the debt, Rickenbacker considered re- repaying the 250000 that had been loaned to him a matter of personal honour, and he actually eventually repaid the full amount. Yeah, probably when interest and various things had reduced it to almost nothing. But well, possibly. It's still, it's, it's more honourable than most uh, businessmen. Now, the design of the car, that was also justified, as uh, all American-made cars soon afterwards had the four-wheel braking system, which was introduced by the Rickenbacker Motor Company in 1924. Now, uh, we were talking about aviation, and you said he, 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 did, he did carry on, uh, you know, when he should have been concentrating on the motor company, I suppose. Uh, so what's he up to in, 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 the, in the air, up, up high? Well, he tried to achieve speed and distance records, as well as trying to develop a light plane that would be affordable for private ownership. And uh, in 1923, so a little bit earlier, he announced the Glider Trophy, which was a worldwide contest to be held annually to encourage experimentation in glider design. The trophy alone cost $5,000 to produce. Now, that... that, that I mean, he does seem to be uh, not entirely grounded in business affairs to me. Uh, well, he does seem to be a bit of an entrepreneur, doesn't he? He likes to, to do things. But, but not grounded. But, yeah, perhaps. <laughs> Especially with his glider. They often glide ground. Now, in 1925, although he was no longer in the army, 
he appeared as a defence witness at the court-martial of the former Brigadier General Billy Mitchell. Wasn't he in charge of the United States Air Force as it was? Uh, in France during uh, the the uh, Great War, yes, for a period. Uh, and he was charged for insubordina- insubordination because he constantly criticised the failure of the army to implement a full-scale aviation so programme. he was insubordinate. He was, and that's why they charged him with it. Now, as you mentioned... He was right, though. Yeah, he was, and, and later proved right. Now, as you mentioned, he served in France during World War One, and by the conflict's end, he commanded all American air combat units in that country. Not in Belgium? Not in Belgium, nor in uh, Lowestoft. Belgium? <laughs> that was a trick question. <laughs> right, so um, now, uh, d- d- so Rickenbacker, the great ace of aces, American aces, that, that would clear his name, would it? No, uh, despite his testimony and that of many others like him, Mitchell was found guilty. Uh, Rickenbacker was far from pleased. And actually, this was reported in the press at the time. Now, you said you said he was had an entrepreneurial nature. He, he I liked, never said that. That's far too long a word. Yes, it is quite a word. I was struggling with it for a while, but I got through it, I felt. Um, in 1926, he starts something else. What's his start then? Well, I think you're referring to Florida Airways, which uh, he started with his fellow Great War pilot, Reed Chambers. Never heard of him. Now, other investors of note, which you may have heard of, <laughs> included such luminaries as Henry Ford, and his investment included the supply of three new aeroplanes, and Percy Rockefeller, who was the nephew of John D. Rockefeller, the co-founder of Standard Oil. The Ultimately, the famous rich people of, of legend. Yes, yes. Yeah. Now, the airline started to carry mail in April 1926 and passenger services began two months later, uh, travelling between Miami and Jacksonville. Uh, uh, what happened to Florida? Did they boom or bust? Well, it was a victim of the crash of 1926. As I mentioned earlier, he's trying all these things at a period in time that we now know, yeah. with hindsight, was going to be difficult. And uh, he also suffered because of a decline. Uh, it, uh, property a boom property boom, yeah. It, yeah. And, and he fell into receivership within a year. So that's two setbacks, corporate setbacks in quick succession. But despite this... 1927 saw him purchase the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for $700,000. I want to just say that uh, he seems to have... That's a lot of money. He seems to Um, generate quite a lot of money. And uh, this was reported... Is he uh, one of these chaps who loses other people's money? (laughs) And this was reported by the Associated Press... A group of businessmen headed by Edward V. Rickenbacker of Detroit, America's greatest ace in the World War, and formerly an automobile race driver, today purchased a large share of the stock in Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Rickenbacker was named president of the organization, which in the future will be known as the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Corporation. That was brilliant. This does well. This is this is something he can run. He seems to do well at this, and and he and he, he runs it successfully, doesn't he? And until he sells it after the Second World War, so uh, we can we can put that aside in a way. But it's not it's not all it's he's it's not all he's doing. What else is he doing? Well, he's not content with just being the owner of a racetrack. He also kept the job that he'd had with General Motors since 1921, as well as a number of airplane manufacturers who he worked for. And in 1929, he convinced General Motors to purchase Fokker Aircraft Corporation of America. Hang on, I've heard that name before. Yeah, it was uh, part-owned by the famous designer of the scout planes that he'd once faced on the Western Front, which includes Belgium. Are you saying he used to fight Fokkers? 
He did. Now, in the years that followed, I glided past that, glided. Oh, see what I did there. In the years that followed, Rickenbacker became involved in a number of aviation companies, moving away from General Motors before returning in 1933 following their purchase of North American Aviation, where he was appointed as Vice President for Public Affairs. Uh, they're using his name, aren't they? Um, uh, Rickenbacker publicly criticised President Roosevelt and his New Deal, and when President Roosevelt rescinded the existing mail contracts... <laughs> that were held by private airline companies and moved it to the U.S. Army Air Corps in 1934. So, uh, good idea to criticise Rickenbacker, well, criticise Roosevelt, do you think? No, as, as it transpires, Rickenbacker, who was at that time Vice President of Eastern Air Transport, uh, guess what? One of the private companies that were impacted by this, he described Roosevelt's New Deal policies as little better than socialism. And uh, following the deaths of several inexperienced and undertrained army pilots in crashes, he called it legalised murder. How did that go down with Roosevelt? Well, as a result, the uh, Roosevelt administration that ordered NBC Radio to ban Rickenbacker from their programmes. Yeah, I like that. How did that, Roosevelt? Yeah, he was around for a while, wasn't he? Now, in early 1935, he becomes Rickenbacker, not Roosevelt, uh, general manager of Eastern Airlines. And in 1938, after he'd learned that General Motors was considering selling Eastern, he met with their chairman of the board, Alfred P. Sloan, and bought the company for $3.5 million. Now, under his uh, his uh, stewardship, I mean, the, the company prospers, doesn't it? Uh, it grows from one flying a few thousand miles a week into a, a proper, a major airline, if you like. Uh, what else does he do? Well, he negotiates mail contracts with the US government. I thought he was barred. No, as no. well as developing new aircraft Ooh. designs. He also purchases faster and larger aircraft, including the four-engined Lockheed Constellation and the Douglas DC-4. Uh, I th- is that... I think that's a famous aircraft. Yeah, that's a famous transport aircraft in the Second World War. Now, uh, th- he does something else, and this tickled, tickled my fancy, Gary. <laughs> what is it? Well, it's it's rather bizarre, but he scripted a popular Sunday comic strip called A. Strummond, which I think I've heard of, from 1935 until 1940. Yeah, it's uh, made into a film series, uh, one of those... Uh, you know, Saturday morning shorts, I, I suppose. Oh, might not have been, might have been longer. Uh, also a radio programme as well as a book. Uh, we've got a book, haven't we, Gary? What's our book called? Laugh or Cry. When you work with me, it's one or the other. <laughs> now, getting back to the point, easily distracted, Pete. During this time, he was also involved in another comic strip called uh, The Hall of Fame of the Air, which was a fact-based comic that featured airplanes and air battles of famous aviators and aces. Oh. I, I, do you actually think he wrote the, those pieces, or do you think he just gave gave his name to it? I, I, you don't know, do you? But we what don't do you know. Think? But his name certainly added a certain authenticity to the comic strip. So he was, yeah, he's been paid for his name probably. But he might have written it. We don't know, do we? We don't. Now, in spite of his love for flying, Rickenbacker never actually used the word safe. Uh, about it after his experiences I'm not surprised and and he's actually been quoted as saying this and uh, you're going to tell us what Edward V Rickenbacker said I never like to use the word safe in connection with either Eastern Airlines or the entire transportation field I prefer the word reliable mm. Now, there's good reason for this, because on the 26th of February 1941, he was in a Douglas DC-3 that crashed in the woods near Atlanta, Georgia. Now, after the impact, he's, uh, he's, he's pinned down 
under the wreckage. He's he's uh, he's soaked in aviation fuel, and uh, you know he's he's coming in and out of consciousness. So what what does he do? Well, when he's not unconscious, he devotes his time to encouraging those around him to fight for their survival, uh, including those that would subsequently not live long enough to actually be rescued. Now, he recalled the training he'd received during his service, and he instructed those able to walk on how to go about finding help. Now, <clears throat> this was uh, summed up by a chap called David Lee Russell, who wrote a book, Eastern Airlines, uh, uh, History, 1926 to 1991. And he, he describes a predicament Rickenbacker finds himself, because he's absolutely buggered, isn't he? I mean, you know, it's a technical term. Of the survivors, Rickenbacker was in the worst shape. In the crash, he was jammed into the seat arm, which fractured his left hip socket and pelvis on both sides. He had three ribs broken, two of them protruding through his skin on, on his side. His knee was broken, his left elbow was crushed, and his skull was dented. The survivors suffered for hours in the cold since the rescue team did not reach the crash site until 6.30am, just before dawn. Rickenbacker was poured from the jagged metal between a bulkhead and a fuel tank. Mm, I mean, can, just think about that for a minute. What a state he's in. Yeah, I mean, I find it interesting that he wasn't in the worst state, seeing as some of them died, but, uh, you know... Now, the rescuers don't that's hold out... That's probably some hyperbole. Uh, uh, hyperbole or hyperbole. The rescuers didn't hold out much hope for him, and this is his aide, John Halliburton, uh, remembering. I wouldn't have given a plug nickel for his living another 24 hours. One eye was hanging out of its socket all the way down to his cheekbone. We put Eddie on a stretcher with a defective catch. I could still remember him cursing, even though he was only semi-conscious. Some bastard of a newspaper photographer shoved a camera in his face as we got him on the stretcher, but he never got a chance to snap a picture. Someone from Easton, I don't know who, damn near knocked the gut off the bridge where the plane hit. The git, I think that might be. I'm not sure. Anyway, he hit him anyway, didn't he? I'm not he? sure an American would call him a git. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Why would he call him a gut? Maybe he was quite a large chap. Now, David Russell, he details what happened next. Rickenbacker and the other injured were taken to Atlanta's Piedmont Hospital on Capitol Avenue. When an intern saw Rickenbacker, he remarked, he's more dead than alive. Let's take care of the live ones. Seeing his mangled body, a Catholic priest offered to give him last rites, but he refused it. Dr. Floyd McRae, the head surgeon, arrived and started working on Rickenbacker. With his eye back in its socket, the next morning McRae made sure his patient got a milkshake laced with brandy. But Rickenbacker responded, <clears throat> I want a bottle of beer and ham and egg sandwich. McRae produced six bottles of beer, but lied to reporters that he gave Rickenbacker Coca-Cola. The Coca-Cola company sent Rickenbacker a refrigerator filled with the soft drink. <laughs> It pays to advertise. And uh, Coca-Cola, it's a very refreshing drink, isn't it, Gary? Yes, it revives you, doesn't it? If you're not feeling very good, a whole fridge worth would be fantastic. It would. And also, I'd just like to say that brandy is also quite nice and uh, that uh, that uh, uh, we really like beer. Wow. <laughs> We're so, going to be inundated. <laughs> inundated, our sponsors. Right. Uh, they're, they're, it's not funny. This crash, though, is a terrible event. I mean, uh, it, it is, isn't it? Eight people are killed. They Well, uh, they lose their lives in the aftermath of the crash. Uh, and how long was Rickenbacker in hospital? Uh, 
Well, he was there until the 25th of June, 1941. But he did actually... So that's, that's the best part of uh, four months. Yeah. But he did actually resume work. And he and he made the hospital room a, a kind of office. And actually he even held meetings with the executives of the company by his bedside. So it's like board meetings around his bed. Now, ultimately, the cause of the crash was recorded as pilot error. Although Easton were heavily criticised for a lack of proper cockpit procedures. Now, at this point, we'll take a short break. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome back. Now, during the period leading up to World War II, Rickenbacker supported the isolationist movement. Now, what's that? Well, it's uh, keeping America out of the war, isn't it? Yeah, because the war, of course, was raging since thirty-nine in, in Europe. Go, yeah. yeah, but he officially left the America First organization in 1940. He'd been a member for a few months. He then adopts uh, a very pro-British position, doesn't he? Uh, and uh, he, he likes... It's what he describes as Britain's heroic resistance to relentless air attacks. Uh, and, the, you know, the Luftwaffe pounding London. All he's he's referring to the Battle of Britain, yeah, isn't he, yeah. in 1940. Now, he was convinced of the need for American involvement. And, and he actually wrote 
And you're going to tell us what he wrote. Should these gallant British withstand the terrific onslaught of the totalitarian states until the summer of 1941, it is my sincere conviction that by that time this nation will have declared war. Uh, in actual fact, they don't, do they? Uh, no, they, uh, they they do, following the attack on Pearl Harbour in December 1941, so the end of 1941. They do come in. and They're then, once more at war. Yeah. Uh, can Rickenbacker be seriously involved? Well, he, he is one way or another, but can, I mean, how old is he by this? Well, he's in his 50s and it's too old to fly combat missions. But the US government, they've got every intention of utilising his unique skills. He does have a fair amount of skill. He's got an interesting skill set, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. But he's also got an airline. And in 1942, he pledged Eastern Airlines equipment and personnel for use in military activities. Under his instruction, the airline flew munitions and supplies across the Atlantic to the British. And he himself, armed with a letter of authorisation from the US Secretary of War visited Britain in an official capacity where, along with making recommendations for war operations, he actually inspected troops, operations and equipment. This is a publicity role, but 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 it, it, it's, it's also increasing support amongst both civilians and soldiers, American and British, of course. I mean, he, he, he's, he's, he's a popular man. He is, but he also does other things. He later worked with both the US... Army, Air Force and the RAF on bombing strategy, which included working both with Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Harris and General Carl Andrew Spatz, who was later to be appointed as Commander of Strategic Air Forces in Europe. I'm not quite sure what his uh, input would have been on bombing strategy. Yeah, it may be that he... he get, yeah, well, we'll see. Uh, no, well, we won't see, because we don't know. Uh, now, he'd reach middle age... Suppose there's not much excitement left, is there, Gary, in this podcast? Um, he's had enough, of, uh, you know, adventure, thrills and spills, more spills and thrills and spills and thrills to last a lifetime. But um, there's something lying ahead, isn't there? Something really dramatic. Uh, and this is why you, Gary Bain, of whatever your address is, I not tell him that or they'll be round to knock your fence down. Um, the, uh, the, you wanted to do a second podcast about this incredible man because there's something amazing coming up, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, this is from an article in 2004 for World War II magazine, and it was written by one Billy Ray, which is a great American-sounding name. And he explains, In late 1942, Secretary of War Henry Stimson and Army Air Force's Chief of Staff General Henry H. Happ Arnold asked the 52-year-old airline executive to travel to the Pacific Theatre as a $1 a day non-military observer. Rickenbacker was accompanied on the mission by his aide, a Colonel Hans Adamson. Did he get a dollar a day as well? Probably more. On October the 20th, 1942, they climbed aboard a well-worn Boeing B-17 in Hawaii. The B-17 was crewed by Captain William Cherry Jr. of Abilene, Texas, who was the pilot, Lieutenant James Whitaker of Burlingham, California, who was the co-pilot, Lieutenant John DeAngelis of Nesquahoning, Philadelphia, who was the navigator, Private John Bartick of Freehold, New Jersey, who was an engineer, and Sergeant James Reynolds of Fort Jones, California, who was the radio operator. Now, also along was Staff Sergeant Alexander Kazmarchik from Torrington, Connecticut. Uh, 
who was an enlisted airman who was returning to his outfit in Australia after recovering from a lengthy illness. They finally took off at 1.30am on the 21st of October, bound for Canton Island, about 1,800 miles to the southwest. Now, this B-17D flying fortress strays hundreds of miles, <clears throat> of course, and it, 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 it runs out of fuel. It, 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 you can't just wander about the Pacific. It's too big. Uh, it, it, and it, what, what do you do if you run out of fuel? You have to ditch in the sea. That splashy thing. Uh, and the, Billy Ray goes on to say in his article, Rickenbacker stuffed a map, some official papers and his passport into his coat pockets. He also grabbed several handkerchiefs and a 60-foot line. When the rafts were inflated and free, the pilots exited through the forward hatch and lent a hand to the passengers. Rickenbacker's escape hatch was above a wing, so he helped the others climb out once he was outside the plane. The swells were well over six feet high, making the rafts extremely difficult to handle. Now, some of the men, uh, they, they stripped down to the underwear uh, because they thought they'd have to swim for the, the rafts. So others uh, kept the clothes on. Um, and now, now, what else have they got? What, what, what have they managed to get off the, the, uh, the, the, um, the, the flying fortress? Well, in addition to the rope, they also had a first aid kit, a very pistol with 18 flares, two hand pumps, which we use for bailing out water and pumping air into the raft. Very sensible. Two sheath knives, a pair of pliers, a small compass, two collapsible bailing buckets, some patching gear for each raft, pencils, as well as the map Rickenbacker had grabbed. Now, Sergeant Reynolds had grabbed two fishing lines, but they didn't have any bait. Uh, now, the pilots uh, had kept their pistols, so they, they, they were armed. They could cope with uh, any mutiny on board the rafts. Now, they settled back exhausted into the rafts, and they were suffering from a combination of both exertion and stress. Now, who was in the worst condition, Pete? Well, that would be Kamazik, uh, because, uh, you, as you will remember, he'd recently been uh, discharged from the hospital. Uh, and uh, there's one thing that they... they, they They'd been foolish about, hadn't they? Yeah, in their scramble to escape the sinking aircraft, they'd not recovered even one flask of water or an emergency ration box. And uh, Edward uh, V. Rickenbacker, I bloody hate V's. Vernon. Vernon. Edward Rickenbacker to me. Eddie. Eddie. (laughs) No, (laughs) he says this. We're going to need that water, somebody said. Let's go back and get it. Don't be a fool. That plane's going to sink any second. You'd never find the water and rations anyway. They're all sloshing around uh, underwater. Sloshing, sorry. Anybody who's in that plane when she goes down will go right down to the bottom with it. And so we decided not to try to get the water and rations out of the plane. That was another mistake. The ship stayed afloat. He means the aeroplane. Uh, for almost six minutes. Well, I'm not sure that was enough time, but there you go. Then slowly the tail swung up and poised gracefully for a split second. And then the ship went down. As I say, he means the aircraft. Now, the unrelenting Pacific sun... We're getting poetic uh, again, Gary. Uh, ...begun to uh, burn. You mean and, it's hot? Uh, it's very hot. Those that had removed their clothing... <laughs> Never remove your clothing, Gary. They began to suffer. Now, Rickenbacker is watching as Sergeant Reynolds, who'd taken his clothes, he goes, pink? 
then red, and then he begins to blister. Uh, and if you think of it, the unrelenting sun, no shelter for hour upon hour upon hour. Uh, what happens to the others? Same well, thing. Same thing. Those that are taking their clothes off, they're also going to blister. Now, Rickenbacker, what? Is he he's wearing a is civilian he in, suit. In his undies? No, he's fully clothed in a civilian suit. And he's also got a battered fedora hat on. And uh, so he's relatively protected. But the salt, salt water that, uh, as you say, sloshes about in the, the raft, yeah. that caused sores all over his body. Well, that's the prolonged exposure to it, isn't it? It is. And he later recalled his uh, and his comrades' predicament. There followed five days of calm. It was beastly hot. There was no rain until the eighth night. We saw nothing in the way of searching planes or ships. The boy in my boat had a Bible in the pocket of his jumper. On the second day out, we organised prayer meetings in the morning and in the evening. Frankly and humbly, we prayed for our deliverance. After the oranges were gone, there showed up terrible pangs of hunger. Then we prayed for food. I didn't hear any mention of oranges before. No. Now, it's at this point that something so unbelievable happened that uh, Rickenbacker later admitted... If it wasn't for the fact that I had seven witnesses, I wouldn't dare tell this fantastic story. Carry on. Well, they'd prayed for a miracle, and on the afternoon of the eighth day, following one of their prayer meetings, um, they were attempting to have a nap when they received one. A miracle? Yeah. Rickenbacker, he'd leaned back against the side of the raft and he pulled down his hat over his eyes. All he could hear was the gentle lapping of the waves against the raft. Now, suddenly, Rickenbacker felt something land on the top of his hat. What was it, Gary? What was it? It was a seagull. <laughs> so what does he do? Well, he sat perfectly still while he sort of planned his next move. I can imagine it. Now, with a flash of hand and a squawk from the seagull, he managed to grab the bird and wring its neck. Now, he, tear the, he tears the feathers. He, he plucks the bird. And then uh, him, uh, he and his starving crew made a, 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 a small meal. But they, yeah, there's the, eight of them. The two rafts are obviously adjacent, very adjacent. Uh, uh, there, there wouldn't be much. Uh, I think there's three rafts. Oh, was it? There, there, there wouldn't be many, uh, much to eat. No, but afterwards they're able to use the intestines of the seagull for bait. And they had those fishing lines. Yeah, and with that they caught fish, which in turn gave them more food and. More bait. Oh, right. And so the cycle of their luck continued. They'd have been even luckier if they'd had sausages. And once more, this is Billy Ray in the uh, World War II magazine of 2004. Late that same afternoon, the sky turned cloudy. The wind took on a different feel. And for the first time, the prospects for rain looked promising. About 3am, raindrops fell for a few minutes and they spotted a swole not far away. They paddled towards it, praying that they could get in its path. There was already a plan in place for such an occasion. They would catch rain on handkerchiefs, shirts and socks spread out over the rafts. Adamson even removed his shorts. It's always one. The squall turned into a driving rainstorm and all hands did what they could to collect water. Rickenbacker was designated his raft's ringer as the clothing became soaked. He twisted the water into a bucket. I wouldn't want the uh, short water. No. After the storm subsided, the men agreed to ration the water sparingly, a half jigger per day per man. I don't know what a jigger is. It was the sweetest water they'd ever tasted. Oh, God, I ruined Especially them. the ones from the shorts. I, I, ruined, <laughs> I ruined that, that last uh, elegant quote. Um, did, 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 so there was eight of them. Uh, did they all survive? 
No, it's not enough to save Kazmachik, who drank seawater whilst suffering from dehydration. He died after they'd been adrift for two weeks. Hang on, so that the eighth night it rains, so there's another six days, another basically week. And they buried him at sea. Now, um, so um, what what's going on in the background? This is the greatest ace of World War One or the Great War, as we would call it, uh, is missing. So what are the authorities doing? Well, the uh, US Army Air Force... Are they searching? Are they? And the US Navy, they planned to stop searching. So they were searching? After just about two weeks. Ah, I've just remembered another thing from previously. They weren't where they were supposed to be. No. They were madly off course. They were. Now, Rickenbacker's wife persuaded them to search on for another week and... Uh, back at home during this time, the newspapers and radio reports were stating that Rick and Becker and his crew were already dead. So what do the, 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 uh, the boats do? Well, the survivors split up. Cherry rode off alone in the small raft and was rescued on day 23. Reynolds, DeAngelis and Whitaker they found a small island that was close to so an inhabited island yeah, where the natives were hosting an allied radio station, which is rather handy. fortunate. Yeah. And a float plane rescued Rickenbacker, Adamson and Bartek on the 13th of November 1942. That's 24 days. I've just worked that out in my head. Yeah, it also says it in the notes. Now, all were suffering from exposure, sunburn, dehydration, and actually near starvation. Yeah, we've got to remember, though they're fishing, that, that, that it, it's not exactly a lot to eat. It's, and they wouldn't be able to cook anything, so it'd be all raw. Um, oh, like sushi. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned, they were lost for a total of 24 days, and the survivors were taken to a Navy medical base at Samo. Uh, and in the, in the end, all of the men make it home. Except for? Kosmachinchik. Not quite as good as the previous effort. Um, so, uh, so is that the end of the story? I mean, that's just an amazing story. And uh, let's be honest, it's the reason you wanted to do this additional podcast because it is just such a great story. It's an amazing of, of man. survival and just what and it happened to the the greatest American ace of the war. I mean, what of the First World War? Well, and for the rest of his life, he he would apparently uh, quietly go away and uh, 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 at the coastal areas where there were seagulls and things and thank the seagulls. It's bizarre. So <laughs> went a bit loopy. Didn't now Rickenbacker was determined to continue to support the war effort. And in 1943, uh, following his own suggestion that he undertake a fact-finding mission to the Soviet Union, he was going to go to provide assistance to the Soviets with uh, technical assistance with their American-supplied aircraft, he approached Soviet diplomats rather than official American channels. Hmm. Well, uh, there must have been some official channels because uh, Stimson, that's the chap... Uh, the- Secretary of State for what? Uh, he, he, he gets permission and he's, uh, he's signed to visit the, the Russian Soviet bases and production facilities. And he goes, and actually, he goes everywhere, doesn't he? Goes he goes on a bit of a tour, doesn't he? He goes to well, the Aleutian just, Islands. It's not just the Soviet Union, nope. is it? Burma, China, India, the Middle East, North Africa, and then the Soviet Union. Now, the War Department, they, they provide everything that Rickenbacker needed, uh, including uh, <laughs> an unusual, very unusual letter. What's it say? 
Well, it gives the bearer permission to visit any areas he may deem necessary for such purposes as he will explain to you in person. And that was signed by the Secretary of War, Stimson. Uh, I need to visit this bar. Yes. (laughs) And that brothel. Now, Rickenbacker began his trip in April 1943, travelling first to Cairo. So that's only that's a, that's a five five months after. No, no yeah. He travels to first to Cairo in a US Army Air Force C-54, and from there on to India. I wonder if he was nervous about flying. No, I shouldn't think so. <laughs> he never got nervous in all the other crashes and yeah. He made detailed reports on every stop, and uh, he, he, including an unfavourable report on the hump airlift when he returned to the USA. It's an airlift with a hump. Uh, And he travelled on to China, Iran, and from there to the Soviet Union. Now, uh, he's looking round, uh, and he's, well, wartime conditions of the Soviet Union, and he notices, the one thing he does notice is uh, the the determination, the patriotism of of the Russians. Uh, And uh, he noticed something else that's uh, a little less savoury, because determination and patriotism are fine. What else does he notice? Well, the Russians had a policy of denying food to those deemed to be unproductive to the war effort. That's harsh. It is. Now, while he's there, he does what he's there to do. He shares the required knowledge of the American-supplied aircraft, and he does make several friends amongst the Soviet officials. (laughs) They lavishly entertain him, and he later recalled attempts by the NKVD agents, so that's the uh, Soviet Secret Service, Service, to get him intoxicated enough to disclose sensitive information. He'd largely tell them about seagulls, I suppose. Yeah, I would imagine it's a lot of... And then when you need a seagull... (laughs) uh, um, uh, I wonder, do you think if the NKVD attempted to get you uh, lavishly entertained and intoxicated, (laughs) they'd they'd get any information out of you? No. It certainly wouldn't get any sense of They'd get it before lavishly entertaining me. <laughs> now, although his uh, mission's successful, when he gets back to America, he's he's not greeted with, uh, you know... What was the name of that president? President Roosevelt. He didn't meet him. Or, uh, and, and although Rickenbacker's later awarded the Medal of Merit for his support of the war effort by the United States government. So there's no official recognition when he returns until he gets that medal. Yeah, I wonder if that's after Roosevelt was dead. Um, now, now uh, let, let's move on, because we, to be honest, this is all an excuse to get to the seagull, but it's not the end of Rickenbacker, is it? Because it, it's not. No, I mean, this it really is a departure for us, this podcast, but, you know, it's trying to recognise this man had several lives. You know, he, he was a, 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 a racing driver, a scout pilot, an entrepreneur, and, and latterly, a very, very, very successful businessman. And a very, very, very lucky man. Yes, or unlucky, because yeah, he yeah, kept yeah. finding himself in these situations. Now, following the war... Rickenbacker set out to make Eastern Airlines the leading commercial carrier yeah. in the United and, States. And for a while, it was the, the most profitable airline in the you know in the post-war years. Uh, what happens in the, the 1950s? Does it carry on being successful? Well, in the late 1950s, its fortunes declined. And, More and competition, I would imagine. I would think so. And Rickenbacker himself, he's forced out of his position as CEO on the 1st of October 1959. And he, he resigns furthermore as chairman of the board. Uh, but but then he's seventy three, which is fair enough. On the thirty first of December nineteen sixty three, no need for such a precise date. I, I personally feel, but you know, 
Now, he published his autobiography in 1967, which was simply entitled Rickenbacker, and that was the primary resource for this second podcast. And we, we recommend that you read that because it's a rattling good read. You enjoyed reading it because you did, you did a lot of the work on this. I did enjoy when it. When I say lot of, I mean all. <laughs> I did enjoy it. And, uh, you know, it does shine a light on what a remarkable man he was from, you know, very, very um, underprivileged childhood. Uh, right through to to you know Americans ace of aces and and then a successful businessman. Now, unfortunately, he suffers a stroke in 1972, uh, and that left him in a coma for a short period. Yeah, he does get better, but I don't think, from the sounds of it, properly better because it's it's only a year later. Uh, so he's spoiler. Dead. Yes, yeah, spoiler. So what does he do? July 73, he travels to Zurich. He's, a, he's after medical treatment for his wife's failing vision. So still a caring, sharing type. Yeah. And what happens uh, while he's in Zurich? Uh, it's a place to go for uh, to recover from illnesses. Yeah, he contracts pneumonia and he died at the age of 82. That's a fair old age for a man who, when he was flying above uh, France in 1918, he probably would have counted his life in hours rather than decades. Yeah, and when he died, Rickenbacker was the last living Medal of Honor recipient from the United States Army Service, Army Air Service. He still was. He was a great man, wasn't he? He and was. There's a, there's a tragic side story in the fact, although it's his wife Adelaide. What happens to her? Well, she, as we mentioned, she She's was blind. blind, in failing health, and she's still grieving severely from the loss of her husband. And in 1977. She shot herself at their home in Key Biscayne, Florida, at the age of 92. That's a sad, sad ending uh, for me. Um, um, now, um, so basically, we've, we've enjoyed doing it. We're going to do more American stuff because we've had a look at where our audience lies. <laughs> and uh, a lot of you are American. Hi. <laughs> Sorry about the American accents. Uh, Gary's was great. Um, we, um, we, we would urge you to, uh, the, our American friends, uh, Laugh or Cry is now available in America land. Uh, for a, a modest sum, a modest sum, um, and uh, and we're looking forward to carrying on into another year of podcasts. And actually, it's our third anniversary coming up in February, Gary. Yeah, we'll get divorced three. soon. No, Gary, we're looking forward to the prosperous and happy future. Yeah. Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?